0: Welcome to the Art and Science of Joy podcast. This podcast is all about inspiring people to live more joyfully. So if you're seeking a bit more joy in your own life or seeking to bring some more joy to the lives of others, then this podcast could well be for you. And in the second series of the podcast, we are focusing on joy superpowers, special, special powers each and every one of us can cultivate and use in our own lives. I'm Andrew Cannon, and I have the honor to be your host. In each episode, I'll be inviting our guests to share their words of wisdom on a specific joy superpower, whether that's in relation to personal growth, genuine belonging, positive impact, or simply having fun. And welcome to episode five of the Joy Superpower series. Today, I'm going to be talking with Paulette Dale, and together we're going to explore the joy superpower of assertive communication. Paulette has a PhD in linguistics and communication from the University of Florida and is an internationally renowned speaker and consultant in the areas of public speaking, effective communication, and assertiveness training. Paulette is author of Did You Say Something, Susan? How Any Woman Can Gain Confidence with Assertive Communication, and has featured in most major magazine newspapers, including the New York Times, Huffington Post, USA Today, Newsweek, and Cosmopolitan, to name but few. She has even been parodied on Saturday Night Live. Paulette has also received recognition on the floor of the United States Congress as documented in the Congressional Record for helping women become assertive and develop self-esteem. Paulette, welcome. It's a real honor to have you on the show today.
1: Oh, Andrew, the honor is mine. Thank you so much.
0: So before we dig into the more serious topic of assertive communication, I'd like to ease us into the conversation by first asking why on earth were you parodied on Saturday Night Live and how did that make you feel? (laughs)
1: Well, I usually love the Saturday Night Live parodies with uh, Alec Baldwin and Kate. I can't think of her name now, but I didn't like this one. And that's possibly because it was about me. I was parodied because on national TV in front of 14 million people at former President Donald Trump's town hall, I had been chosen to ask him a question about his policy prior to reelection. And before I began my hardball question about DACA, I was surprised and delighted to see him generally smile at me with a beautiful million watt smile. And what popped out of my mouth was, Mr. President, I've got to say you have a great smile. To my dismay, my comment went viral. Hundreds of thousands of posts on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube the next day talked about the woman who told a sitting president he had a nice smile. So Saturday Night Live, parodied that.
0: Wow, that's not exactly, <laughs> didn't exactly go how you'd planned, I, I imagine.
1: <laughs> Just popped out of my mouth. <laughs>
0: There you go. Communication in, in real, real life. That's wonderful.
1: Right. And I don't necessarily agree with the president's, uh, the former president's political and philosophical views. I just felt a genuine compliment was in order and I paid it.
0: All right. The power of kindness, the power of kindness. That's, <laughs> that's wonderful. Um, As you know, the focus of this podcast is on both the art and the science of living joyfully. And and one of my favourite truisms about living a joy-filled life is that we are defined not only by our experiences, which we often can't control, but by our perception of and reaction to those experiences, which we are in a way totally in control of, and as a result can also choose to choose joy, perhaps as our response to any experience even if in practice that's sometimes a bit more challenging than it sounds. And talking of challenging experiences, could you share with our listeners your experience on your, on your trip to Peru and how you reacted to that?
1: I have been an English language specialist for the United States State Department and they've sent me all over the world to conduct workshops for English teachers on methodology of teaching English as a second language. This trip took me high up in the Andes to a city called Huancayo, approximately 3 miles high. The airplane landed at a very small town about an hour from Huancayo and it was the airport was surrounded by domestic terrorists wielding Machetes and lighted sticks of dynamite, which they proceeded to throw off the mountain, creating landslides, blocking roads. They were very upset about a government policy that was affecting the indigenous people who inhabit the Andes Mountains. So, this was their way of rebelling. They wanted to prevent anyone from entering the area and anyone from leaving the area. My driver from the United States Embassy in Lima was waiting for me. And we escaped through a hole in a barbed wire fence that surrounded the airport, bumping and jumping over rutted roads, boulders, uh, trying to avoid llamas and alpacas. And it was very scary and I was terrified. And that was not a joyous situation. Right. And all I could do was keep saying, things don't go wrong they go different everything Mm -hmm. will be fine you will prevail and you will get through this and we did but it was hairy for a while I can assure you
0: I can imagine I can imagine (laughs) but afterwards now you can look back on it with a, a different lens
1: well, that's what my son says. Think, mom, you had a, what an experience. I still have a little post-traumatic stress on occasion when I think about it. But yes, I do look at it as an interesting tale to tell.
0: It is stories, stories, definitely. And we all love good stories. Another superpower, which we featured on our second episode of the podcast with David Intrater, But now let's dig into the power of communication And I admit, you know, to being a little bit intimidated by having you on the show today, since I'm reasonably new to this podcasting malarkey, and I'm aware of my tendency to use my favourite filler word, um, when I'm a little (laughs) bit nervous or lacking confidence. And I know you recently posted on LinkedIn about trying to avoid such little filler words, especially men have a tendency to use those in their communication. So maybe you can start off by sharing some tips for people like me who find subconscious comfort in these filler words.
1: We all find subconscious comfort in these filler words. Please know I'm not judging, I'm listening to your message. It's like going to a party and meeting a dermatologist socially. We think they're looking at our skin and analyzing it. They're not. Or if we meet a dentist socially, we think they're judging our teeth and our smile. They're not. I'm not judging ums and uhs. Yet they can be distracting if overused in spoken communication. We call them vocal fillers. And it's always better while you're thinking of the next thing to say, instead of filling the silence with a vocal filler, um, uh. Um, um, those were intentional to have a moment of silence while you think of what you want to say. And the best way to help reduce the amount of these distracting vocalizations in our speech is to make others aware, friends, family, that we're working on this and to signal to us when we use them, a subtle signal of your choosing. Another way is to record yourself, which you do often, as do I, and listen back to the recording and make yourself aware of your use of these vocal fillers. And you will soon find that you are more aware of them and less likely to use them.
0: I think that awareness is definitely very important and using the silence in between seeing there's a friend, a chance to breathe perhaps, and not an enemy to you.
1: Exactly, Mm -hmm. it is a friend. It's a friend to you, the speaker, and it's also a friend to the listener. It's much easier on the listener's ears To have silence while they are waiting for you to say what you are going to say next rather than to hear um uh uh, or um (laughs) Don't
0: remind (laughs) me, don't remind me (laughs)
1: So it's it's a lot easier on the listener also. (laughs) That's that's a good that's a good point to add to that.
0: It's it's easier (laughs) for most people. So let's try and use the silences today as we make it through this podcast.
1: And I'm very self-conscious of it now also. I hope I can walk my own talk.
0: Walking the talk. So let's see, let's see, because you are an expert in language and communication. So how do you see that language and communication can affect a person's well-being?
1: Oh, what a great question, Andrew. So much research indicates that language and communication do affect our personal well-being, as well as our quality of life. Human beings are inherently social creatures. Most of us find that our greatest source of happiness and satisfaction is in our relationships with other people. After all, Andrew, communication is the process by which we humans create and interpret messages. So much of what we know about communication and personal well being. Is related to how well we build trust and rapport and establish common ground with others. We all want to be understood, right? Correct. Being sure, being able to communicate how we feel can help others to understand us better. And that in turn increases our mental well being. When others don't try to understand us or understand the way we feel, it can make us feel diminished. It can make us feel unimportant, without value, and isolated, I believe. And it hurts, whether it's coming from a friend, a family member, or a colleague. So a lot of research even shows that good communication can help both physical it can help speed both physical and mental recovery in someone who has been ill. And poor communication can hinder recovery by adding to mental distress and feelings of isolation. So I hope I've answered your question about how communication can affect our well-being. Back to you.
0: Yeah, definitely. definitely. I can see this impact on isolation very clearly and this impact on Keeping things inside and not communicating, not expressing, for example, how Mm -hmm. you're feeling or how somebody else's words make you feel, um, can have a negative impact on your your
1: well. Absolutely, yes.
0: So, how does language use, in your opinion, then impact the way we perceive ourselves as well as the way we perceive others?
1: Wow, another good one. Okay. This I believe relates back to the question you just asked me. Language use, even our own self-talk or what others can say can greatly impact the way we perceive ourselves and others. For example, if we hear something said about ourselves or others often enough, whether it's negative or positive, we might begin to believe it. Take for example, toxic people who engage in gaslighting Mm. the motivation for gaslighting of course is being to get others to doubt themselves and actually believe what is wrongly said about them so for example gaslighters often say you're delusional you're selfish you're too sensitive and after a while the recipient of these negative remarks may actually begin to believe it or andrew think about a child. Language will impact the way they perceive themselves. If they constantly hear that they won't amount to anything, or that they're lazy, or they're not smart, or they're not creative, they will perceive themselves in a negative way. It's, um, there's an um, it's the self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? It, it will kick in, and that child will, will live up to those negative assertions. So they will end up being underachievers. They may have low self-concepts and they believe they won't succeed. They're told they won't, so why bother trying?
0: Right, I can see that. I can see that parents have this massive responsibility in those formative years to communicate in a way which helps nurture self-esteem rather than destroy it in their children. I suppose one of the challenges many parents have is that in a way they're also victims of what their parents communicated to them. And especially I know for our generation who were brought up with parents who were brought up as children during the war have a very different way of communicating because the way their parents and their fathers in particular, you know, coming back from the war, being in the war, communicated, especially to boys, for example, you know, be a man. Um, Yes cry all those expressions that were given to to our parents were then passed down to us and to break that cycle takes a huge conscious effort I would
1: imagine yes conscious effort and awareness as most most things worth doing take awareness but on the other hand on the flip side of course if children are encouraged or told they have capabilities and intelligence and creativity, they're going to be likely to live up to those expectations. So that's how language use can impact the way we perceive ourselves as as well as others.
0: It's powerful, it's very powerful. And it works on two levels, I suppose. It works on a conscious level, as we just talked about. You can consciously decide to talk about a child in a positive way. Um, rather than repeating negative phrases. But I imagine a lot of language happens and a lot of its impact happens unconsciously. And therefore, you know, when we hear somebody's talk, unconsciously we may be making assumptions about that person based on their vocabulary, based on their accent and intonation perhaps of that person. Yes.
1: Yes. Absolutely. Uh, We all have unconscious or even conscious biases about a person's accent, vocabulary, and their vocal aspects. Uh, Let me share an anecdote with you. I was in Manila in the Philippines conducting a workshop on English pronunciation for call center employees. And one of the call center employees was very concerned about the way he came across when a caller from the States, whether it was about a computer problem or a banking problem, whatever, you know, calls get routed to call centers in other countries Mm -hmm. because labor is cheaper for these companies to employ people outside of the United States, for example. And He said, what do I do? I have people hanging up on me. They tell me they wanna speak to an American. They tell me they want to speak to someone in the United States. I want my speech to be much better so that doesn't happen. Now, this young man had virtually perfect English. He was 100% intelligible. Yes, he had an intonation that identified him as being a a non-native speaker of English. Yet there was literally nothing that anyone can do to improve this young man's speech, English, because it was perfect. Hmm. And I told him, you know, this has nothing to do with you. These are biases that people have. These are socio-political problems, Hmm. if that's the right word. People, unfortunately, resent that jobs are being outsourced. So when they get someone in another country, they take these frustrations out on that individual, and their biases start to show up. So people have accent biases. A recent article in Forbes magazine shows that We tend to unconsciously group people into a specific social class based on their accents by thinking that someone with particular speech patterns is not very smart or not very clever, we show our bias. And it also, research also shows, Andrew, that it takes us less than 30 seconds to linguistically profile a speaker and to make quick decisions on their ethnicity or their socioeconomic class or their educational levels. Um, We're more likely to be biased against speakers who have accents different from ours. They remind us of undesirable traits that we unconsciously attribute to certain accents. for example. So, for example, even within one country, let's look at New Yorkers and Southerners. New Yorkers have an ethnocentricity that New York is the greatest city in the United States. And if you're not from New York, you're not sophisticated or you're not as smart. And they will look down on people with Southern dialects as being less intelligent, as being slow, as being underachievers. And on the other hand, people in the South look at New Yorkers as being untrustworthy, slick-talking New Yorkers when they hear a New York dialect. So even within a country, among people of the same socioeconomic level, we have unconscious or even conscious biases.
0: Uh, does that happen
1: in Finland or New Zealand? Well, it happens New very Zealand.
0: much in England. You know, I'm English by, by birth and I remember my upbringing in, in England where yes, very much according to somebody's accent, whether that was a regional accent or an accent that you, you thought portrayed social class would <laughs> impact how you reacted. To that person and perhaps we also then followed it up with this terrible question of what does your father do mm-hmm. in order to validate our initial assumption of whether we can play with this other child or not yes you know in England very much like that in Finland I'm definitely not much more um, equal society in that respect which brings me on perhaps to a second unconscious bias around gender Okay. And it's interesting that you mentioned the Philippines because the Filipino language, a bit like the Finnish language, doesn't have pronouns for he and she, but just the third person pronoun yes. is used for both. Um, yes. And I know there's a lot of discussion recently around the connection between gender neutral languages and gender equality. And I've done some research myself into algorithms and the way, or translation algorithms, and the way they support gender biases that girls like art and boys like science and girls are gonna end up being a cleaner and the boys gonna end up being a doctor type of stereotypes that.
1: Yes, and and then that kicks into the self-fulfilling prophecy because if a girl is told, aspire to be a cleaner, that's what they'll do. And the boy will aspire to be the doctor. And it it's all goes back to that self-fulfilling prophecy. But um, I'm sorry,
0: please continue. Yeah, so can, by changing language, can we change the way we think?
1: Possibly. does lang- So I guess your question is, does language construct the world? And yes, it can. For example, I attended a lecture by a renowned sociolinguist. And he gave many examples from the Spanish culture. Spanish is known to be, as other cultures, a machismo culture. Mm. And for example, why? Well, look, the sociolinguists felt that it had to do with language. For example, the word for handcuffs that a police officer would use to put on a criminal to handcuff them. The word for handcuffs in Spanish is esposas. Esposas is also the word for wives, your wives. Your wife is your esposa in Spanish. Mm -hmm. So by connecting being married to being handcuffed perpetuates the lower status of women in society and will affect their opportunities in the long run. Or Spanish is not a gender neutral uh, pronoun language. For example, you can have 100 children in a room, one might be a boy, 99 girls, and yet you would refer to them as ninos, with the masculine. Now, if it was all girls, then you would say niñas. but one boy will make the whole group masculine, unlike in English, for example, which children is gender neutral. So language has always been used to change the way we think. Trial attorneys, for example, use language to their side's advantage to do just that. Uh, Let me give you an example. I was on jury duty and there was a female uh, police officer, not a police officer, she was sergeant and she was a witness. And she had witnessed the confidential informant buying a sawed off shotgun from the uh, defendant. And she gave her testimony. When the opposing, when the defendants, the defense counsel got up to speak, he referred to the female police sergeant as the lady says, the lady alleges. Well, the lady is a, a police sergeant, highly qualified and trained and, and train to be an observer. But by diminishing her through the use of language, it wasn't really disrespectful, she is a lady. It makes her seem less credible in the eyes of the jury. So, yes, language can construct the world and it can be used to change the way we think.
0: Which is a great risk, but also a great power.
1: A great power. The power of the word. Words are mightier than the sword.
0: And it's, it's very true. It's very true. So let's move on to the... Real superpower for today, which is assertive communication. And I suppose we need to start by defining or describing what we mean by the term. So if you could give us, Paulette, your view on what is assertive communication.
1: Okay, my favorite word. Assertiveness, let me say, assertiveness is often confused with aggressiveness. Learning assertive communication doesn't mean you push other people around to get your way or step on other people's toes. It means standing up for yourself, expressing feelings directly and firmly. Assertiveness means establishing equal relationships that take the needs of both people into into account. So for example, if you're a passive or submissive communicator, you're conveying the message, you're important. I'm a nobody. If you're an aggressive communicator, you convey the message, I'm important. You're nothing. And if you're an assertive communicator, you're conveying the message, I'm important and you're important too. Back to you, Andrew.
0: So it's more of a collaborative form of communication.
1: Okay.
0: A balance. A, a
1: balance. Great work.
0: It's a balance communication. So, sociolinguistics have been studying the way language use varies according to gender. So, let's talk about gender a little bit. Again, because that's a topic which forms the base of your book, Did You Say Something, Susan? And we know, yes. for example, that women use more standard language forms than men and employ more softeners like rising intonation, intensifiers, so just, or tag questions. Why do men and women, in your opinion, speak
1: differently? Okay, it's my opinion, and it's also pretty much the opinion of many researchers. A lot of it has to do with even now in 2021, women are still being socialized to be seen and not heard. They are still being encouraged not to rock the boat, not to speak up, keep the peace. They're being inhibited or criticized or ostracized when they express express divergent opinions. So women are still reluctant to speak up and to speak up for themselves if treated rudely or they're They're reluctant to say no to unreasonable or inconvenient requests, largely because they're still socialized that way, even in Western cultures.
0: To avoid conflict.
1: To To avoid conflict, to avoid being disliked. Yes. And what they don't realize is being liked and being respected are not mutually exclusive.
0: That is so true. That is so true. Often I suppose people have this need, especially with social media these days, to focus on perhaps trying to be liked, thinking that that would also increase their respect, but that's not necessarily true.
1: That's right. Mm -hmm.
0: Excellent. Um, Janet Holmes, um, a social linguist, has been studying softeners in women's speech. It's something we looked at and we found that she found that, that women actually use tag questions. For example, he's lovely, isn't he? Primarily to facilitate interactions, whereas their primary function for men tends to be expressing uncertainty. So do you have any tips on how to be polite without seeming like giving in?
1: Okay, sure. I did a post today. Of- a full pre-standing post on tag questions and how using tags diminishes our credibility when speaking. And yes, it makes you come across as uncertain and unsure of yourself and they're good to be avoided unless it's informal conversation. This coffee is delicious, isn't it? It's really humid outside, don't you think? An informal conversation, as you say, it helps to encourage conversation, make people feel comfortable. But in a business situation, it really diminishes your credibility. So when you want to say everyone needs to show up, or let's say you're a manager, everyone needs to show up early, no later than nine o'clock tomorrow, because we have a lot of work to do, okay? No, 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 get rid of that tag. You could still be polite. Everybody, please show up early, nine o'clock tomorrow. We have a lot of work to do. I really appreciate your cooperation. Get rid of the tag. And by throwing in some more pleases and thank yous, you will come across as being polite without seeming like giving in or without coming across as abrasive. Tags simply are not necessary to convey politeness. Back to you.
0: Well, there's there's nothing like a good please and thank you.
1: <laughs> You're right.
0: They go a long way and can also avoid the use of these tag questions, which most people don't realize. I suppose the negativity that they can convey about your communication if you use them in a in a business context, for example.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: So your book gives women practical advice on how to be heard. Many studies have shown that men tend to interrupt women more often than vice versa. And one study that examined student exchanges, for example, in public places, even found that men did 96% of the interruptions in cross gender conversations. Do you have any tips for both men and women to change that?
1: Yes, I do. In fact, I cited that same research study recently in an international Zoom conference on assertive communication I conducted uh, for women in sustainability. So we're checking the same sources, Andrew.
0: That's good to hear.
1: Yes, right. So again, allowing ourselves, male or female, to be interrupted minimizes our impact when communicating. We can't allow it, we diminish ourselves. There are several ways to make our point clear that we're still speaking and we shouldn't be interrupted. One way is we might want to seek help in advance from the meeting leader and say, if anyone interrupts me, you as the leader, I'd appreciate it if you would say, please let Susan finish and she will take your questions at the end. So possibly the meeting leader can help us out. If not, you might speak to a habitual interrupter prior to the meeting. So if you know someone tends to be an interrupter, you might say, Marla, I really would appreciate if you would not interrupt me during the meeting. I'll be happy to hear your viewpoints when I, when I finish. So please let me finish what I'm saying until I recognize participants for questions that doesn't work. If that doesn't work, you might have a variety of ways in mind to say, don't interrupt me while you're speaking. If someone interrupts you, you could hold up your hands in a stop sign gesture and say, please let me finish. You can say, please hold your comments until I'm finished. You can say, please give me a moment. I promise to answer your questions when I'm done. You can use humor if you feel it's appropriate. I thought I was the speaker and you were the audience. I've even gone as far as when the other items didn't work as saying, Linda, everyone would love to interrupt me. I don't think you should have all the fun. So,
0: (laughs) I love that one. That's a fun one.
1: Again, if you say it with a smile and a twinkle in your eye, it won't. And and the right tone of voice is everything. It won't come across as aggressive. It will come across as assertive. So the smile, the twinkle, the chuckle, the right tone of voice is key. But we must stop interrupters in their tracks because if they don't, it will continue to happen over and over. And we will lose our credibility. Yeah, I can.
0: Yeah, I can see this issue between a lot of people with challenges around empathy, perhaps, where they're often thinking about what they are going to say next, rather than listening to what the other person is saying, and therefore this silence that you're encouraging. Is seen by them as an opportunity to jump in.
1: Exactly. One of my uh, LinkedIn colleagues, uh, Patrick Allward, uh, wrote a wonderful book called The Collaborative Path. And he talks about the unfortunate tendency of people to listen to respond rather than to listen to learn. And we would all do so much better if we would make a conscious effort to listen, to learn and not listen, to respond back to you.
0: Curiosity is, which comes to my mind when I think about that, if we have a curious mind, if we're thinking about how the other person is feeling or, or thinking that helps
1: us perhaps
0: communicate. I, in
1: that way. Yeah. I agree. It does take A degree of emotional intelligence to be able to do that. And for those who have that emotional intelligence, we do exactly what you said. Unfortunately, not everyone does that. So I'm hoping podcasts like yours help raise this awareness and help people who want to improve it to improve their emotional intelligence.
0: I definitely hope so, and I, obviously I hope even more so that books like yours go even further than we can do justice to this topic um, in half an hour or so. It's such an important superpower to communicate in a way that's not passive, it's not aggressive, but it's in the middle. It's that assertive communication that you are recommending people to cultivate their skill in.
1: Exactly. It's the middle. It's the golden choice.
0: It is. Although I would perhaps argue that and I don't know whether you would agree on this, but the balance becomes more to listening than to talking. One of my favorite sayings is that you have one mouth and two ears and perhaps you should <laughs> use them my, in those proportions my- <laughs>
1: To listen twice as much as we speak. That's right. God gave us one mouth and two ears so we can listen twice as much as we speak. That's priceless,
0: that's Andrew. A, that's a good. Thank thing you. To hear, <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So you know, in its addition to respecting our, our own, will assertive communication can be used to spread joy through the act of complimenting. And in chapter 11 of your book, um, you address this topic very well. Could you tell us more about the benefits of complimenting as well as why complimenting is an assertive speech act?
1: Absolutely, I can and I will. Paying compliments is a highly assertive act. One reason that many people don't praise others is often due to their own lack of assertiveness and self-confidence. Some people are afraid of being rejected or that the compliment won't be well received. That the reaction might be, who are you to give me a compliment? Or what do you know? We're often so focused on our own lives and we become self-conscious about expressing praise to others. So when we can overcome that, paying compliments becomes an assertive act. And complimenting others, whether it's about their appearance or their personality or their ability or a job well done, has so many advantages. We'll put a spring in someone's step. Notice how a person's face glows when you pay them a compliment. I'm sure you've noticed that, Andrew, right?
0: Definitely, definitely.
1: Okay. Praise can be such a strong catalyst for positive change in others, as well as in ourselves. It might even as- inspire another to pay it forward by saying a few kind words to someone else. So what goes around comes around. Po- the positive reinforcement we receive from expressing a compliment to someone else can and often does embolden us to be more positive and assertive in the future. Uh, Two of of my favorite quotes on on compliments is, a compliment is like verbal sunshine. That's anonymous. And one of my other favorites by Mark Twain is, I can live on a good compliment for two weeks with nothing else to eat. Back to you.
0: That that is wonderful. Food for the soul, food for the heart.
1: Right, food, food for, for the heart. heart.
0: Yeah. Excellent, excellent. And I think the the skill of complimenting, as you say, it gets paid back. That if you develop a skill for complimenting, you'll find over time that more and more people are complimenting you, which makes you have that spring in the step that you talked about. And you can also use this skill to compliment yourself. Yes. A lot of people don't spend enough time talking positively about themselves in this way. And they're always sort of putting themselves down. My hair doesn't look good. I don't look good in this dress, for example, instead of turning it around saying, you know, I'm looking good today. I feel good today.
1: Absolutely. And that goes back to your first question, Um, use of language. How does does it make us feel about ourselves? How does it affect our well-being? Well, that's positive self-talk. And positive self-talk can affect our well-being so very positively, while negative self-talk, as you just described, will have the opposite effect. So that's, it's all it's all interrelated.
0: It's all interrelated, all connected, and, and balance is one word that's come out today quite often and about this balance between bringing joy to yourself and bringing joy to others through the power of assertive communication. Before we go, Paulette, there is one question I'd love to ask you. And it's a simple question. What brings you joy?
1: Andrew, everything brings me joy. My friends, my family, little things in life, as my dad used to say, stopping to smell the roses. I live opposite a mangrove swamp, separating where I live from the intracoastal waterway. I see egrets. I see pelicans. Stopping for a moment to watch them to enjoy nature brings me joy. Dealing with delightful, charming, like-minded individuals like you, Andrew Cannon, brings me joy. So there's no shortage of things that things that bring me joy joy can be found all around us and we don't really have to look too hard to find it
0: that palette is so beautifully said thank you again for the compliment but even more important i am a great believer in finding joy in the little things in life so thank you for reminding everybody about the importance of that
1: my pleasure and thank you again for having me on your phenomenally phenomenally wonderful podcast. Thank you for doing this.
0: Oh, well, you're wonderful, Paulette. Thank you so much, and I look forward to keeping up our communication in an assertive manner. Well, Paulette, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today. It's been such a joyful gift to spend time like this talking with you, and thank you so much for sharing your wisdom on this so important topic.
1: Well, thank you, and the joy has been mine, and you've given me a wonderful platform to share my message. And thank you for what you do, Andrew. You make a difference to a lot of people all over the world.
0: Thank you so much for that compliment, Paulette. And I (laughs) hope you, our listeners, feel inspired and empowered by my chat with Paulette and have learnt some tips and tricks for using the joy superpower of assertive communication to add some more joy, not only to your own life, but also to the lives of others. And if so, why not hop on social media and using the hashtag JoySuperPowers, share your thoughts on assertive communication and joy. If you want to explore further the power of communication, I can warmly recommend Powlett's book, Did You Say Something, Susan?, which you can find on Amazon and Kindle. I just love this endorsement by Mark Victor Hansen, co-author of Chicken Soup for the Soul, who says, It's a must-read for every woman. It's not a bad idea for men either. Dr. Paulette Dale offers solid advice to help women effectively communicate with impact and grace in all situations. And grace is one of my favorite words. And if you don't already do so, please follow the art and science of joy on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Come and join in the conversation and help us spread the joy. Thanks once again for listening. And I hope you tune in next week for the next episode of the art and science of joy podcast, when we'll be talking with Nick Elston, on the joy superpower of overcoming anxiety. And until then, take care and live with joy.